P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Bonds. What to do with the bond market? We've got Jim Bianco. James Bianco is the president of Bianco Research, joining us from Chicago. Boy, uh, you know, uh, Jim Bianco, I think if the bond market continues the way it's going, there are not going to be any people in the bond market much longer. No, I think they're in the sleeping pods you guys were talking about. <laughs> exactly. <before. laughs> Can I? Can I? Take yeah, a they got their blankets. You know, they're pulling out. They get that little pillow out from well, underneath the desk. <laughs> Jim, I'm so glad that you could join us. I don't know if you saw that uh, the Fed's Jim uh, Bullard came out today and said that there's no need to discuss the Fed's balance sheet. People have been talking about when the Fed will stop reinvesting uh, what they get from their 4.5 trillion dollars of investments that they're holding. Um, what's your take on this? Do you think that they're going to have to talk about it, given the amount of money uh, that they're receiving from bonds? being paid out and maturing? Yeah, I think they're going to have to talk about it. Um, the Fed's balance sheet has got trillions of dollars of Treasury securities on it. In simple terms, the bond market believes that all those bonds that are on the Fed's balance sheet are permanently out of circulation. They are never going to come back into circulation. So what Bullard is saying, and what Bill Dudley has said and some others have said, be very, very careful when you talk about reintroducing those bonds back into the market, because then you could have a shock in the market if they, they believe that we have to make room in private accounts now, you know, banks and, and endowments and trusts and speculative accounts for trillions of dollars of securities, which are locked away, which we think is forever in the Fed's balance sheet. It could be very disruptive. To date, I don't think the market has listened much to that conversation because it's not going to until the two big architects of the balance sheet, Bill Dudley and Janet Yellen, speak on the subject, and they haven't. And now that Bullard has come out on the other side, it's going to reinforce that idea that, man, that's just Fed talk. We don't really have to listen to it. Do you think we have to listen to it? I mean, aren't the mandates for the Fed price stability and employment? It has nothing to do with protecting people against bond losses. Right. Price stability is another word for inflation. Since 2009, when the recession ended, the Great Recession ended, what have we not had is inflation. So when the Fed has this giant balance sheet and they run these extreme policies, they're allowed to get away with it, if you will, because we haven't had inflation. Now you get Donald Trump being elected, and you see consumer confidence at a 17-year high. You see business optimism at a 40-year high. You see all of these numbers going through the roof. The stock market's at a new high. And there's talk of reflation, and part of that reflation talk is inflation as opposed to real growth. Maybe now for the first time in seven or eight years, we might actually get a pulse out of inflation, and it might force the Fed to have to deal with that. Up until now, they could just discuss, ignore, you know, you know try and outsmart everybody about it, but they didn't have to do anything about it. But if we get inflation, 
they do have to start thinking about it. Jim, I don't know if you caught this, but yesterday BlackRock's Larry Fink was talking about his outlook on the bond market. And he said that he actually thinks that there's a higher likelihood of the 10-year Treasury yield going down from here, possibly going below 2% rather than rising. So it sort of goes against this idea that we're actually going to see some inflation. Do you agree? I actually do agree with that. I think that the problem is, and this gets into the technicals of the bond market, I think we're going to see a bump up in inflation, and I think that by 2018, we're going to see higher yields. Now, that is the most consensus thing you can say, so much so that almost everybody in the bond market is positioned for that. So if the market does go to 3% by the, by the spring of next year, everybody makes money. And as we found with contrarian opinion, when everybody's lined up one way in a market, it tends to go the other way. So that's why I wouldn't be surprised if we do go below 2%, like Larry said, first – question that idea that there's going to be inflation, and then we have the big rise of rates after that, going and, you know, finding out that, yeah, it was there. It's just the problem is everybody's positioned for it right now, and usually when that happens, the market has a tendency to go the other way. So if, every, if everyone's wrong and the market goes the other way, who's going to suffer the biggest losses, and will this be something that everyone's talking about, how there's a lot of hurt going on? Yeah, I think that, you know, right now, if you were to look at who is the biggest bet on rates going to 3%, it's the more speculative hedge fund accounts. By some of the measures in the futures market, uh, they have the biggest short position ever, ever in the in the bond market, betting on higher rates, because they think Trump's going to bring back a reflation. They're on the firing line uh, that they're going to be the most hurt by some kind of a fall in interest rates as opposed to a rise. Jim, how long can they hold that position until the leverage starts to hurt? Oh, I think that if you start pushing rates down, you know, run under, say, 220, yeah. we're around 238, 238. Two yeah, 238.4 right now. Right. And we were as high as 260 in mid-December, so we're halfway there. I think that that's when the pain threshold will start to kick in. And then as you go underneath two, it will really kick in. What about the spread, though? I'm looking at the spread, let's say the 210 uh, spread, uh, 1.17 on the two-year, and uh, as you just said, the 10-year, uh, 2.38. So uh, one, you know, one, uh, one versus two and a quarter. Right. I think that, you know, as you were to push the 10-year down to 220 or maybe down to 2%, you would see the yield curve spread you're right, it's 117, probably continue to narrow, too. And that would not bode well for financial stocks. And they've actually hit a little bit of turbulence right. here recently because a wider spread, they, they borrow short and long, benefits them, and a narrow spread would hurt them. So if, if everybody's too lined up for 3% rates, which would be good for the banks, and we wind up going to 2 they could stumble in that environment as well. Okay, so let's say what what happens uh, that you just said. Let's say it plays out where all of a sudden you've got uh, yields on on ten year Treasuries plunging uh, against everybody's consensus. Mortgage rates. Do you think that they could continue to rise despite this, or would they also fall uh, in tandem? I mean, are they basically linked at the hip at this point? Um, no, I think mortgage rates would they they would fall on an absolute basis, but I would agree with you that um, the spread would widen. They would not right. fall as much as treasuries would fall. Uh, so they wouldn't decouple all the way that one would go up and the other would, would go down. And, the, and I think that the reason that mortgage rates would fall is the one thing the Fed is working off of their, is, is the, um, their mortgage holdings are, are really working off their balance sheet fast. That means they're more in private sector. If we do get a reflation and that does get a bump up in 
housing starts and in refinancing, you could see demand for mortgages, and that could also keep their rates um, higher than they would from a treasury, so you could see the widening spread. That's really interesting. So even if we see uh, treasury yields decline, borrowing costs for people who are looking to borrow money uh, to buy a house might stay elevated. Thank you so much. Jim Bianco, always a pleasure speaking with you. President and founder of Bianco Research, longtime veteran of the bond market, uh, expecting that just like uh, Larry Fink of BlackRock thinks possibly it's more likely for 10-year treasury yields to fall before they rise. We've been talking a lot about the anti-globalist trend, uh, the populist wave that we've uh, seen wash over really the entire world. We haven't heard as much about what this will do for travel, but now we have someone who can give us some insight. Alex Zoziah, Chief Executive Officer of Apple Leisure Group, which is based in Philadelphia. Alex, do you have a sense that people will travel less internationally given the populist backdrop and sort of the anti-globalist sentiment that we've seen? Yeah, thank you. I, I, I am concerned about that. Uh, what we see the trends in the short term is that we have stronger numbers for Americans traveling outside of the country, particularly to Mexico and the Caribbean, versus a year ago for traveling within this year. Uh, but it could be affecting soon if the rhetoric continues to be the one of protect, protectionism and uncertainty of what's going on in the airports and stuff like that. So, yeah, it is a concern that we have, although the big trend still shows very positive. Well, you've been doing this for, what, thirty more than 30 years? years. Uh, can you kind of run down for us the destinations where you think investments, at least in the actual infrastructure of hospitality, are best, uh, are best looked at, whether it is Mexico, Costa Rica, Panama? Where would you look? Yeah, well, that's the places that we're looking at, that we're investing, and, and indeed the, the places that you mentioned now. That, um, and we are uh, totally focused on, on resorts, and on the resorts, the most profitable destinations happen to be the ones that have the biggest connectivity, the best natural resources, the lowest payroll, and and, and, and the vocation of, of uh, tourism, particularly to serve the American tourism. The American tourism-oriented um, destinations are the most profitable ones. And yes, the beaches in Mexico, Cancun, Riviera Maya, Los Cabos, Puerto Vallarta, all those are great places, but also in the Caribbean, there's great, there are great opportunities, Aruba, Jamaica, uh, Turks and Caicos, Dominican Republic is growing very rapidly and with great returns. And, and then we see um, uh, opportunities in Central America, not just in, Contar in Costa Rica that has been there for a longer period of time, but now we see emerging places in, uh, in, in Panama as well, hopefully soon Nicaragua. And then we go south, uh, places like Colombia, it's also growing very rapidly with good returns and, and good response. And, and great uh, customer satisfaction. Alex, in addition to some of the uh, protectionist rhetoric that we've heard uh, globally, there also is this feeling that generally people are feeling better about their economic wherewithal, particularly in the United States. Are you seeing that sort of trickle into uh, plans for more expensive vacations or just more vacation plans in general? 
Yes, of course. We see with that, that 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 of course helps a lot. People are feeling better. Uh, the, the the prices of flying outside of the United States in general is uh, is cheaper than before. Uh, we have a drop of about 14% to the destination that we work with versus a year ago. So I think that the Americans are seeing more value for their money on one side and the other side. They are comfortable with their um, with the with the overall economy, and I think that obviously helps the people to travel. And uh, we're seeing that we. See see the number of new passports uh, issuing in the United States now at 15 million per year, about 50% of those, so 7.7, 7.5 million are uh, reissuing passports, renewals, but the other 7.5 are brand new passports. So in 10 years, you're talking about almost 80 million new passports in the United States, and, and it's still only 40% of the population. We still have 60% of the population in the United States without passports. So I do see a big trend of people getting passports, getting passports, of course, to travel outside of the country. And the biggest region that it's utilized uh, for the utilization of those passports is uh, Mexico and the Caribbean. So I see a big growth, a big trend. Uh, traveling internationally, it's becoming more uh, for everyone, more a commodity. But within those experienced travelers, certainly they're spending more money and looking more sophistication. There's also much better product. Well, when you talk about product, Alex, I'm wondering if you could tell us, is there an opportunity for an investor in Mexico? Are there hotel projects that are looking for investors uh, that maybe have been stymied because of the change or the apparent change in policy uh, because of the Trump administration? I don't, I, don't, I don't think that because of the Trump administration has slowed down any of the projects that are down there, but certainly there's always an opportunity for American investors to go and invest in, in places in Mexico or in other, uh, or in other uh, uh, destinations in the Caribbean. In this case, uh, the, the American investors, uh, in the case of our company, we just had KKR and KSL investing big time in our company, uh, uh, they've been very shy so far. The Americans have not very active in this, in this sector, it's mainly uh, dominant by uh, regional and local investors as well as European investors. So there's not so much activity so far for the, for, the, for, the, for the U.S. investors and particularly for the U.S. banks to participate in the leisure sector on the hospitality in Mexico. But I see a lot more appetite and a lot more openness of, uh, of going and compete and start investing there. So I don't see any projects slowing down. Uh, but right. what I do see is a great opportunity to speed that up. we got to leave it there. I want to thank you very much, uh, Alex he is the chief executive of Apple Leisure Group. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. You know who did some innovation? Uh, Theresa May, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Uh, she innovated by convincing the parliament to... Uh, pass her plan to exit the European Union. Uh, it comes with a catch, though. 
Let's dig a little bit more into that with Sarah Jane Mahmoud, government analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence in London. So, Sarah, can you first just give us uh, a rundown on what exactly Parliament passed, giving Theresa May uh, the ability to go ahead and start the process of uh, exiting the European Union? Hi there, yes, sure. Um, so yesterday, um, MPs in the House of Commons passed the bill that gives Theresa May permission to activate Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty, effectively kick-starting exit talks for Brexit with EU leaders. Um, however, um, she doesn't have a free pass as yet because the bill now goes to the House of Lords, um, who from the 20th of February will start considering um, whether or not Theresa May can activate Article 50 by the end of March as she wants to. What is the outlook for the House of Lords vote? Um, well, the House of Lords um, remain mainly opposed um, to activating Article 50 and to Brexit. However, as they're an unelected body, they would be unlikely to block the bill itself, um, but they could take their time to consider it and make possible amendments, for example, make the activation of Article 50 contingent on um, the government considering staying in the European economic area or securing continued access to the EU single market for UK-based financial services companies. So in other words, um, this might become a pretty thorny, sticky issue. Just because they, this means that Theresa May can start the process, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will speed it up by any means. Uh, and it sort of remains to be seen whether Parliament will work with her on some kind of a constructive basis to get through a plan that is palatable for, for everybody involved. Exactly. I mean, it's likely that the House of Lords will ultimately pass the bill allowing the government to activate Article 50. Um, and it's also likely that because Theresa May wants to activate Article 50, start exit talks with EU leaders by the end of March, a self-imposed deadline. Um, I think ultimately she wants to do this during the next European Council meeting that's set for March the 9th. Um, so she's hoping that the bill will get approval before then. Sarah, you know, just a Zooming out a little bit, as as a member, as somebody who lives in London, uh, how has the conversation changed? I mean, when you go out to dinner, you go to the pub, is everybody still talking about Brexit and Brexit negotiations? Do people still care? Are they paying close attention to all of these machinations? Or are they kind of separating themselves from it, kind of uh, assuming that things are going to keep going? I mean, I think, to be honest, there is a, a lot of Brexit fatigue at the moment um, in professional and social circles. Um, but a key issue looking at the financial services sector is whether or not banks, fund managers, insurers, payment service providers and more um, can continue to access the EU market uh, once the UK exits the EU, which, if Theresa May can activate Article 50 by the end of March, um, it would be likely the UK would leave the European Union around about April 2019. Well, are people in London worried about losing their jobs? I think there, there is a big concern that many financial institutions are likely to move their operations into another EU member state. Um, but I guess until there's more clarity, until Article 50 is activated and negotiations start taking place, um, there's just a lot of uncertainty here. How does passporting relate directly to the sales that financial companies currently enjoy? 
Okay, so un under the passporting regime, companies, financial services companies that are based in the UK, regardless of where they are incorporated, um, they have free access to over 27 European countries. Um, they're allowed to establish a branch or provide cross-border services without needing local authorization in every single country. And they generally only have to comply with one rule book rather than up to 28, for example. Um, Theresa May's plan is basically a hard Brexit, which means to leave the EU um, without continued access to the single market, or rather continued membership of the single market. Um, so with that, passporting rights would be lost, and financial services companies that have their base in the UK would need to seek alternative ways to access the EU market. Now, the white paper that the government published last week didn't really give any clarity on what special deal they're looking to, to make with EU leaders, and similarly, EU leaders leaders won't really show their cards and they won't indicate what they might be able to offer the UK until Article 50 is activated. I want to thank you very much uh, for your insight and your time. Sarah Jane Mahmoud is a government analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, based in London. Of course, Bloomberg Intelligence providing unique and real-time research in a variety of industries and also government as well as market factors that affect uh, business. Just uh, type BI Go on the Bloomberg to get all of that uh, Bloomberg Intelligence research. You know, every time I see that a bank or a firm is moving their operations out of London elsewhere in the in the United States, uh, the European Union or the US, I have to think, is this because of Brexit? Is this because of Brexit? But perhaps, perhaps it's just people are sitting and waiting. I guess we'll have to say. It could be. I want to call on Sharuti Singh, our agriculture companies reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from Chicago. Sharuti, I'm wondering if you could describe for us an industry that many people may not know the details of, but are the recipient of. This is the uh, meat packing industry. And uh, maybe you could give us the uh, sort of rundown on how a steak actually arrives on the plate of a diner and how that is connected to foreign policy. Sure, absolutely. So good to be with you. Um, the meat industry in the U.S. Um, employs a lot of different people, and um, it's, it's a long supply chain that starts with a farmer. And if you're talking specifically about steak, you've got farmers who raise cows and calves. Those cattle go on to feedlots, and then those um, cattle that are fattened up at feedlots then eventually go to the meat packing plants. And the meat packing plants are where we have a number of uh, different types of workers there. Uh, one of the larger uh, segments is uh, the immigrant population, particularly over the last few decades. The immigrant workers have increased um, and more recently, in the last decade or so, uh, we've seen uh, refugees become a fixture in these plants. So, Shruti, I was just looking at your story, and you say that uh, immigrants hold more than one-third of these jobs in the United States. And I'm wondering, Shruti, from your sources, what are you hearing as far as what recent uh, immigration policies and proposals, uh, what effect they would have on their business? Well, right now, I think a lot of the companies are uh, monitoring the situation. But when we talk to some of the industry groups, um, they're telling us that they want the administration to really um, consider what ramifications the policy changes would have on businesses as well as the foreign-born workers. 
Well, I wonder if you could get the details for us in terms of the companies affected. Tyson, uh, for example, uh, Cargill, uh, JBS, uh, are they all exposed equally? Well, you know, one area that we looked at was Fort Morgan in Colorado, where Cargill has a large beef plant. And that is an area where um, there are a lot of immigrants and a lot of um, uh, refugees that are working in that particular plant. Where Where are these people from? Just to give us as much detail as you have. Sure. So Cargill actually told us that about 12% of the employees at the Fort Morgan beef plant come from East Africa. Um, and a, a lot of these workers have come for a variety of different reasons. But, um, you know, one of the ways that they can find employment um, in the U.S. Uh, through placement agencies has been at these plants. And over the last decade, Cargill and other meat packers have relied on or have turned to refugees as a source of um, a labor pool, basically. And um, even so, Cargill has told us that it is still a challenge uh, to be able to fully staff those plants. And just to give you a little bit of an idea, Cargill's Fort Morgan plant in Colorado um, starts workers at an hourly wage of about $14.90. And that's about 60% higher than Colorado's minimum wage. And they offer health care and benefits, but um, it's still a challenge for Cargill to fully staff that plant. So um, to play devil's advocate, somebody could say, well, the reason why they can't find enough people uh, to fill those jobs is because it's a difficult job and it's one that mm-hmm. people aren't uh, drawn to unless they're paid substantially more. And, you know, there's a question of would they be paying even higher wages and employing a, a, a sort of a broader range of people if they didn't have access to people who were uh, escaping war zones. I mean, I, I'm just wondering, is that is that really what's going on here? Because before 2006, right, they there were a lot of illegal immigrants um, that these plants employed. And after a crackdown, they turned to refugees. Mm-hmm. So one person we talked to who tracks the refugee resettlement uh, program really carefully, uh, she actually suggested that maybe the meat packers um, could draw more native-born applicants for these particular jobs and these meatpacking plants if they raise their wages. And then she even acknowledged that, you know, that could potentially lead to higher prices for consumers. But uh, she said, you know, I'd be happy to eat less meat. Well, we want to thank you very much uh, for being with us. Uh, Sharuti Singh is our agriculture company's reporter, joining us from Chicago. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.